How do you apply artificial intelligence to solve business problems? That's the million dollar question that everyone's trying to answer. And they all need this answer sooner than later. Applying artificial intelligence is real. It's coming fast. It's going to affect every business, no matter how big or small. And as exciting as that is, it's also bringing a host of new questions with it that need to be answered. For example, when is AI actually good enough to deploy? What are the risks if you get it wrong? And with the really big players competing in this space, cue those Facebooks, Amazons, and Googles of the world, how do you go about finding the skills you need to bring them into your organization? This is a huge topic, but we're ready for it. I'm John Pryle, and welcome to the Impact Podcast. Today, we're bringing you a roundtable discussion on applied artificial intelligence from our annual portfolio conference. Our chief analytics officer, Chris Mattis, moderated the discussion, which included three panelists, Urs Mueller of NVIDIA, Mohamed Muzba, VP of product at Maluba, recently acquired by Microsoft, and Laura Jackson, a data scientist at one of our portfolio companies, Precision Lender. We pick up the discussion with Chris setting things up before turning things over to Urs to answer the first question. So welcome. I had a, a couple of questions just to kick it off, and I'm going to turn it over quickly to the audience because there seems to be uh, a, a lot of big questions here. One, one of the things we, we, we talked about and everybody kind of brought up in different areas is when is it good enough? How do you figure that out? Um, what can you use to make your, make your decision if, if, if the algorithms can't themselves? Maybe from different viewpoints people could uh, address that. And it's, it's, it's not just technical, it's also uh, intuition and business. Yeah, that's a topic that keeps me up at night. Um, there's so many successful deep learning applications out there. And many of them have the advantage that if you're right most of the time, that's great. So if you do an image classification or image search and you occasionally get something wrong, that's annoying, but that's not the end of the world. You can still use the product and it's valuable. And in self-driving cars, if you're right most of the time, that's not good enough. So the, the, this extreme um, robustness that we need to achieve, I don't quite think we have seen that in any successful uh, deep learning application out there yet, so I consider that as one of the biggest challenges. So getting from what, what you've seen in the demos that looks nice to something that you can actually trust your life on, that it does that and nothing else. It's an interesting question to start with. Uh, the right answer is it's never good enough. Um, I think somebody in the audience, I think the first comment was how we hold machines to a higher regard than we do for humans. Um, I mean, if I think it was the example with Tesla where the first machine collision happened and that was a huge, huge, huge uh, controversy around that. Um, the way we, and this is a hard problem and we think about this all the time, um, the way that we go about it is a matter of how much can you constrain the problem so that you can actually evaluate how well the system does. So for an example, uh, in, uh, you mentioned that we do work in natural language processing. One of the areas that we focus on is reading comprehension, which is teaching a machine to comprehend text um, to the way that a human does. Um, we recently outperformed all benchmarks in the space. I think the leading one was around 69% in several data sets in this space. Um, we hit 74%. A human being's accuracy was for those data sets was recorded at 81%, but that 
that's really cool and that sounds exciting when you can quantify it, but that really doesn't fundamentally mean anything um, when you actually go to it. It's, it's a really tough problem because it's such an open-ended space where artificial intelligence right now is being applied in so many different areas. And can you constrain the problem to the point where you can actually evaluate how well the system does? The, the way we do it in the enterprise is we provide data sets and we do benchmarks against that before we deploy. But I don't think there's a right answer to this question yet. Um, at least my perspective to it is that. Um, I tend to agree with you. Uh, I'm, I'm working on a problem right now where we don't have a very uh, good label data going in. So we can't tell how well we're doing, like 95% or I think Inmar mentioned earlier, anything above 90% or at least above 90%. So for, for me, working on this problem, it's a case of we artificially construct some labeled data, and it's going to be good enough when we make predictions, put them in front of live human beings, and see if they agree with the model. So. Right. And, and, and so some of that is, and that, that's one of the key aspects of uh, artificial intelligence. Essentially, you are introducing the ability to learn from trial and error, good, bad, sometimes with a great deal of difference in consequence. The other, the other thing that's coming up, just switching gears a little, is when, when we looked at all this, um, you know, we're already constrained on getting data scientists and that for machine learning, and it's kind of going to new levels. Um, do you have any practical advice uh, to our leaders out here on how to find them, how to train them, which, which, how to attract them? It's interesting. I think I can, the answer probably differs depending on the space, whether you're looking at data analysis or machine learning or deep learning. Uh, it's a really tough problem because um, the more, I guess, new the field is, the harder it is to find people that are experts in that area. Um, and when you look at artificial intelligence, I think part of the conference is this. We're, asked, we're trying to understand what does it mean overall and what does it mean in the enterprise at a, you know, a, more of a day-to-day -day level. Um, a lot of people are still trying to figure that out. So the question is, what can, it, what can you use AI for? And then the question after that is, okay, how do I build a team or how do I find people that can help us solve that? And there are a couple of ways of doing that. There's the approach of you building out your team internally, which is a really expensive process, especially right now when you look at deep learning expertise and the salaries associated with hiring people in this space. There is working with startups um, or working on this problem at, at a cutting edge problem, but the problem is at any point in time, um, those startups could either fold or they could get acquired or there's so many different questions around that. So where does that leave you in different situations? And it's funny how, depending on who you ask, the, the, the answer could be quite morbid <laughs> or quite optimistic. I think that what I really like right now, and for example, we had a customer meeting this morning and the way they think about this is really different. What they're doing is, instead of thinking about how AI can apply to certain in, uh, departments or areas, they're putting together a global AI budget. And the idea there is to see how could they have that impact different parts of their enterprise across. So it's more of thinking about how Google or Facebook takes this approach in that they see artificial intelligence stemming across all their different services as opposed to having each department trying to fend off and figure that out themselves. Um, I think that approach is really smart because um, this is sort of a new area. It's an expensive area. It's an area that is still open science. Um, and taking more of a core strategy to it makes more sense. So the question was how you can find the right talent in a startup? 
I see a big change over the last few years. So somehow I, I got into this field when nobody believed in it and everybody who was there essentially had to work their way up. Uh, so I got used to that. And now I see all these uh, new college grads who have taken deep learning classes and it's almost a little weird because they know the, the mechanics of it very well, but they don't have the experimental experience that goes around with it. So if you have a problem that's fairly standard, so some of the deep learning applications become engineering disciplines. Like if you want to build a business that uses a new clever way of image classification, and you need people who can build your image classification network, I think that's fairly readily available today. And if you venture out and want to use deep learning or machine learning in a little bit more of an innovative way, then be careful. You got a gazillion resumes with all deep learning experts with high degrees, but they haven't never really learned the trade of science and exploring and finding truly new solutions. Sorry, I'll just add one point. I do agree with Ursa's point in that um, the set of frameworks and tools um, are becoming more and more readily available. I mean, we've got Google, I mean, Google and Facebook and Microsoft, and everybody else competes just on that. And you've got Google releasing TensorFlow and Facebook pushing on Torch and different deep learning frameworks available. And there are hackers that are looking to sort of play around with these and figure out the best way to um, apply these for certain use cases. I mean, that is a very valid venue to move forward with. Great. I have lots more questions, but let's turn it over to the audience. So Laura, nice to see you again. For those of you who don't know, I'm from uh, Cary, North Carolina. So Laura and I used to be neighbors way back when. And so you were just touching on uh, something I had a question about. We kind of have a perspective that applied analytics is part of an evolution, uh, an earlier phase and on your journey towards applied, uh, applied artificial intelligence. So my question, Laura, you know, having that background at SAS, one of those uh, you know, seminal giants in the field of analytics, um, but kind of been a little slow to get into this, this world of, of AI, what do you view as the real opportunity and the distinguishing features that it's different about AI from some of the, the past uh, data science and, and analytics products and uh, solutions that you've seen out in the market that companies in, in this room can go and take advantage of and, and get to that end state quicker than, than some of the people that have a, a wealth of background and experience in, in this field? Thank you for the question. <laughs> Let me see if I can answer it. Um, I w I've been thinking about not so much the tools at one's disposal, but how unique uh, of a training data set you have. And so I think the opportunities lie in when someone can not just have a great idea, wouldn't it be great to have a, an expert lender looking over your shoulder when you're constructing a commercial loan? In addition to having that idea, you have to have access to a very unique training set. And um, those two combined will provide the biggest opportunity. Uh, so it seems like in uh, some problem areas, you have like an asymmetry where when you're right, it's great, but when you're wrong, it's, it's really bad. So an example of driving the car, if the car crashes, terrible bad loan is a lot worse than a good loan, or probably a lot worse. So then I heard some mention of when you get your input data, you get a lot of boring data. So it might be in the case of loans, all the loans that went really well, that might cloud out the loans that went sour. And in the case of automated driving, all the times where you're driving in good weather, lanes visible, is, is, uh, might overload all the times where you got a bad weather conditions or a kink in the road. Is there something other than a rule of thumb or just trial and error that you use to determine how to trim down some of the boring data? 
So yes, that's, that's actually really key. So if you imagine the, the, the amount of data that we're getting in, we couldn't possibly train with all of that. So right now we're, we're um, making our own, we're picking our own distribution between different curves and different weather conditions that's still based on intuition. But the plan going forward is to automate this. And let's say we train on just 1% of the data. And then we take the next percent of the data and we can plug this in a simulator and we can test how the first network that was trained on the first 1% drives in the second 1%. And then out of the second 1%, we only uh, extract the cases that are difficult, where it struggles. The rest we ignore because there's nothing more to be learned. And then you repeat that. Now you train again with 2%. And then you analyze, the, you apply that knowledge to the third percent and so on. This is a bit oversimplification, but that's going to be key for two reasons. A is that we, we teach it the, all these corner cases well that are important <laughs> but rarely seen. And also, for a little less obvious reason, we just don't have the compute capacity to train on all this massive amount of data. We have to be smart to cut out the, the data that really matters out of these masses of data that we collected. So how do you identify the corner cases or the difficult cases that are in the new 1%? Is that a human making the decision or? No, no, we have, not sure if this applies to every application. So in, in our case, what we can do is we take the video that's recorded of the car driving on the road and then we let the network drive on that piece of road. And we can, the same distortions that we use to simulate the off-center, off-orientation positions we use to make a viewpoint transform of the camera to make the network, show the network the image of the camera it would see if the car was where it drove the car. So with these distortions, we can take this, this uh, original video and make it look as the car took a slightly different route down that road. And now we can put simple metrics in there and find the cases where it fails. So we can fully automate that, but it's not fully automated <laughs> because maybe Three quarters or so of those cases are actually human errors when the human driver didn't pay attention and drifted off the lane. So we want to cut those out, not train on those. And then the, and then, so it's still a bit manual. And then the, the other ones, they, uh, those are the hard ones. Those are the ones we absolutely want to keep. Yeah, we have maybe a bit of a luxury of, of having a simple automated way to do to determine that. Yeah, I was, I was just going to say, uh, this is actually, this is a fun question. And it's also a tough question. Um, so we do a lot of work in language. And the fundamental, one of the big misconceptions that people have around, let's say, about AI or robots is that we, we tend to assume that they're objective. Um, just because of you know, all the movies and the Jetsons or whatever it is, you see a robot speaking in a neutral voice. Um, machines aren't objective. They're very subjective. It's similar to how human beings learn. It depends on the type of data that you provide it. So for example, I think there was, there's a really interesting article about how um, there are these police bots and they're being trained on crime data and they're being correlated to certain neighborhoods. And um, the types of correlations that are coming out are not necessarily true. It's just that it's biased for that certain area. Um, language is a great example of that. If you train language on the history of scientists, the machine will assume that scientists are male by nature just because of the dominance of them across the board. Uh, but that's not necessarily correct. Um, so. One of the big challenges here is how do you teach a system, and this is also an ethical question too, how do you provide the data with a diverse set of data um, so that you can um, provide as much of an objective 
and valid uh, approach to solving a certain problem. And that's a very tough problem. And that's probably one area that we think, um, to a certain extent, governance and regulation could actually make sense there. And you hear about this all the time, where the person who's in control are the machine learning engineers or the software engineers in terms of how they program the system. Sorry, what, one, one quick comment is, you know, what we're hearing here, I think, is that um, the actual machine lear learning part, the algorithms and all the rest of it, that is, is, was, back in the day, a good part art, 50% art, an intuition on how you choose and all that. And that is now becoming science. And, and we're able to choose that. Training AIs, what examples and all that, is probably going to go through the same thing. And this is where the art of being able to do it uh, is going to be important in developing those kind of skills. Well, I, we've got time for a couple more questions. I, I have one again for Mo. Um, how much of the workflow in terms of the language processing have you pretty much replaced now with a deep learning based approach versus some of the more traditional steps in that process? It's a tough question to answer because it highly depends on the use case. So we've been to give some context, um, we've been in the industry for five years where we're solving problems in natural language processing. And when we first set out, we set out to build this system that you can have a plain and natural, intelligent conversation with. Um, around the time when we started our company, um, Siri was purchased by Apple. Um, this was around 2010, 2011, it was being deployed. So we thought that the best approach to this was building out a personal assistant. Um, when we went down to it, and I think um, one of the earlier talks mentioned this, Siri isn't fundamentally an AI system. Siri is a collection of um, use cases that you can speak to your device about. You can ask it about the weather, you can navigate to a certain location, um, but you can't go into deep conversations with it. It's not intelligent beyond serving a collection of tasks. Um, so we started looking at natural language processing and in machine learning, and the, the point there was that most of the applications have been towards solving pro, um, problems in a very narrow fashion. Um, there's no generalized approach to solving a problem in natural language understanding. Um, for you to solve a certain use case, you're going to have to do a lot of feature engineering or handcrafting rules to make it work. So uh, approach that we're taking instead of that is can we provide a system with fundamental comprehension capabilities? So regardless of the domain that you're in, whether you're reading a Harry Potter book or a medical journal or insurance paper, can the system have fundamental natural language comprehension capabilities? Um, and the reason why we're able to take more of a broader approach is because of some of the advancements, including the deep learning space. I have a question for you about the natural language processing. Um, given the, the grammar and contextual nature of various languages, have you seen or, or do you know that there are st uh, significantly different results with different language trees? So. This is a great question. Um, and this is sort of one of the great aspects of why deep learning is so interesting. I think you mentioned that um, as we transitioned away from, and I'll talk about this uh, later this afternoon, as we're transitioning from, let's say, more traditional machine learning techniques to deep learning, um, there's, I guess, less art and more science. Um, I wouldn't say science, I'd say more data. Um, so what we found, and this is incredible for us, because um, it was an actual big problem. Um, we built out models that were able to understand how to solve natural language problems in certain use cases. Think of, let's say, a simple Siri. Um, we took that same model 
and instead of English data, we fed it with Chinese data. And it took us six days to get the system to work just at the same level of accuracy as it was with the English system. And prior to that, it would have been impossible to do that just because of all the, I mean, if you think about the two languages, they have nothing in common whatsoever. Um, and that's the amazing thing about taking an approach like deep learning where the more data you provide it, the more it figures out the nuances by itself so that it can classify and build its own approach to solving the problem. Um, but yeah, I mean, some of the advances that we've seen um, have been pretty impressive. Now, is it a solution for everything? Absolutely not. But you're going to have to figure out where exactly to apply those problems to solve. We'll continue to hear a lot about machine learning and what comes next as companies exploit deep learning technologies. But it's only a start. Leveraging these technologies, leveraging more data, adding AI, will lead to fundamental changes in business processes. Oh, it's going to get interesting. Thanks for joining us. I'm John Pryle for the Impact Podcast.